Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! A world without nuclear arms control is a far more dangerous and unstable one with potentially catastrophic consequences. Every effort should be taken to avoid this outcome, including through an immediate return to dialogue. The United Nations is urging Russia to reverse its decision to suspend its participation in Moscow's last nuclear treaty with the United States. We'll get the latest and look at how some of the most popular hosts on Fox, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, promoted Donald Trump's election conspiracy theories on air, even though they privately thought they were bunk. Then the family of Malcolm X announces plans to sue the FBI, the CIA, the New York police and other government agencies over Malcolm X's 1965 assassination. And it is our hope that litigation of this case will finally provide some unanswered questions. We want justice served for our father. Thank you. And Mexico's former top security official, Garcia Luna, has been convicted in the United States on charges tied to drug trafficking. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israeli forces killed at least nine Palestinians in a raid in the occupied West Bank city of Nablus. A hundred others were reported injured. It's the latest fatal attack by Israel, which has killed at least 60 Palestinians, including 13 children, since the start of the year. 16-year-old Montazar al-Shawa died Monday, two weeks after he was shot in the head by Israeli forces. Meanwhile, the U.N. has called on Israel to pause plans to gut the judiciary. The move by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's extreme right government has triggered two months of mass protests. This comes after the U.N. Security Council unanimously approved a statement of opposition to Israel's illegal expansion of settlements Monday. It's the first time in over six years the U.S. has agreed to a rebuke of Israel, though advocates denounce the watered-down, non-binding statement in place of a more consequential resolution. Russia's President Vladimir Putin and Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov met with top Chinese diplomat Wang Yi in Moscow. This comes after Russia announced its withdrawal from the New START nuclear arms control treaty and as Beijing seeks to play a larger role in ending the year-long war in Ukraine. The Wall Street Journal reports Chinese President Xi Jinping plans to visit Moscow for a summit in the coming months. Meanwhile, President Biden delivered a speech in Warsaw, Poland Tuesday following his visit to Ukraine. Kiev stands proud, it stands tall, and most important, it stands free. Brutality will never grind down the will of the free. And Ukraine, 
Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. In Ukraine, Russian rockets killed six people at a bus station in Kherson on Tuesday. The U.N. said at least 8,000 civilians have been confirmed killed since the start of the war, but that the true death toll is likely thousands higher. The Environmental Protection Agency has ordered Norfolk Southern to clean up the contamination from its derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, earlier this month, which led to a massive fire and the release of toxic chemicals. This is EPA chief Michael Regan speaking from East Palestine. If the company fails to complete any action ordered by EPA, the agency will immediately step in, conduct the work ourselves, and then force Norfolk Southern to pay triple in cost. Ohio Republican Governor Mike DeWine also spoke at Tuesday's news conference, saying it's fundamentally wrong that trains carrying toxic chemicals are not required to notify authorities. An investigation by local ABC affiliate WSYX revealed Norfolk Southern donated $29,000 to Governor DeWine since 2018, including $10,000 just last month for his inauguration. The train company gave nearly $100,000 to Ohio candidates over the past six years and extensively lobbied DeWine and other politicians. Railroad Workers United and others are calling for the nationalization of the U.S. rail system in the wake of the East Palestine disaster. Meanwhile, a Union Pacific coal-carrying train derailed in Gothenburg, Nebraska earlier today, on Tuesday. It's the second such accident this week for Union Pacific trains after another derailment Monday in Riverbank, California. The company said no hazardous materials were involved in either instance. California Congressmember Barbara Lee has announced her bid for the U.S. Senate seat being vacated by the retiring Dianne Feinstein in 2024. Congressmember Lee has served in the House for 25 years, perhaps best known for being the only member of Congress to vote against authorizing military action following the 9-11 attacks. Congressmembers Katie Porter and Adam Schiff are also running for the Senate seat. In other congressional news, a Virginia state senator has won a special election for the 4th Congressional District and will become the first black woman to represent Virginia in Congress. She'll fill the seat of Congressmember Don McKeachin, who died in November. And in more congressional news, Rhode Island Democrat David Cicilline is leaving the House of Representatives in June to run the Rhode Island Foundation. Prior to becoming a U.S. Congress member in 2011, Cicilline was mayor of Providence, the first openly gay mayor of a state capital. The U.S. Supreme Court rejected an appeal to an Arkansas law that penalizes the boycott of Israel. The case was brought on behalf of the editor of the Arkansas Times, who refused to sign a pledge that he would not boycott Israel in order to benefit from state advertising contracts. Over 30 such laws are in place around the country and have been used as a model to curb boycotts of oil companies and gun manufacturers as well. The ACLU argued the Arkansas law should be overturned since boycott have been established as protected speech under the First Amendment. To see our interview on the subject, go to democracynow.org. Separately on Tuesday, Supreme Court justices heard arguments in Gonzalez versus Google, a case challenging federal protections for social media and search engine companies that host and amplify potentially dangerous content. The plaintiff argues YouTube, which is owned by Google, 
bears responsibility in the death of Noemi Gonzalez, a U.S. citizen who was killed in the Paris 2015 terror attack because it recommended ISIS recruitment videos on its platform. The justices, however, seemed unlikely to reverse decades of status quo and legal protection for the tech companies. In Wisconsin, a primary vote for a seat on the state Supreme Court has advanced a liberal candidate, Janet Protasewicz, and a conservative, Daniel Kelly, to be the April 4th runoff, which could tip the court to the left for the first time in 14 years. At stake is the future of Wisconsin's abortion ban, which went into effect after the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year. The balance of Wisconsin's top court will also play a key role in voting amidst battles over the state's heavily gerrymandered legislative and congressional maps and possible challenges in the 2024 presidential election. Here in New York, Hernando Garcia Luna, Mexico's former top security official, once charged with leading the fight against narco-trafficking, was convicted Tuesday for accepting millions of dollars in bribes from the Sinaloa cartel under the former leadership of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, who's serving life in prison in the U.S. In exchange, Garcia Luna protected cartel members from arrest and gave them safe passage for cocaine shipments and tip-offs about law enforcement operations. Garcia Luna served under the former president, Felipe Calderón, who launched Mexico's U.S.-backed so-called war on drugs that has led to the killing and disappearance of tens of thousands of people. Garcia Luna also worked closely with U.S. counter-narcotics and intelligence agencies as part of the so-called crackdown on drug cartels. For more on the story, tune in later in the broadcast. In immigration news, the Biden administration's proposed a new policy that could block tens of thousands of people from seeking asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. The rule would force migrants to first seek protection in Mexico or another country they pass through on their trek to the U.S. They'd be able to ask for asylum in the U.S. only if those previous claims in another country are denied. The unaccompanied children would be exempt. The ACLU condemned Biden for mimicking asylum bans that were enacted by former President Trump. Those were ultimately ruled illegal and blocked in court following challenges by the ACLU. In Texas, members of the Chinese community are organizing against a racist bill currently being debated in the Senate that would bar citizens from China, North Korea, Iran and Russia from purchasing property or land in the state. Republican Governor Greg Abbott has already signaled his support for the bill. Asian Americans say the proposed legislation is a throwback to long-repealed xenophobic laws, including the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and the so-called alien land laws of the early 1900s, which banned Asian immigrants from owning land. This is activist Ling Luo of the Asian Americans Leadership Council speaking at a rally earlier this month. Texas Governor Abbott wanted to ban Chinese Americans from owning properties in Texas by passing SB 147 and SB 552. Chinese Americans have to prove their citizenship if they want to buy properties. This is blatant discrimination based on race, which violates the American Constitution. We must stand in solidarity to protest these discriminatory bills. We need to stand up, speak out, and fight back. 
Seattle's become the first U.S. city to ban caste-based discrimination. City Council member Kshana Svant, who proposed the measure, celebrated after the vote, tweeting, quote, now we need to build a movement to spread this victory around the country. And the family of Malcolm X is filing a $100 million wrongful death lawsuit against the FBI, the CIA, New York City and state, the NYPD and the district attorney's office for concealing evidence of their involvement in Malcolm X's 1965 assassination. Two men were convicted of his murder and spent decades in prison, but were fully exonerated in 2021. Later in the broadcast, we'll air comments on the lawsuit from Malcolm X's daughter, Dr. Ilyasa Shabazz, and the civil rights attorney, Ben Crump. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we begin today's show looking at Russian President Vladimir Putin's announcement that Moscow would suspend its participation in the new START treaty, the last nuclear arms control agreement between the United States and Russia. START's shorthand for Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. Putin made the pledge during his annual State of the Nation address on Tuesday in Moscow when he accused Western nations of provoking the conflict in Ukraine. He said Russia's fighting for its very existence. They can't be stupid people. They want to deliver us a strategic defeat while sneaking into our strategic nuclear objectives. Regarding this, I have to say that Russia suspends its participation in the New START Treaty. Let me repeat, Russia does not abandon the treaty, but suspends its participation in it. Before resuming the discussion about this treaty, we must first understand what do such countries of the North Atlantic Alliance as France and Great Britain aspire to, and how will we take their strategic nuclear arsenals into account? The treaty places a cap on the U.S. and Russian strategic nuclear weapons stockpiles and gives each nation opportunities to inspect the other's nuclear sites. Shortly after Putin's spoke, the Russian foreign ministry said Moscow would continue to respect the caps established by the treaty. We're joined now by Dr. Ira Helfand, the immediate past president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985. He's also a member of the International Steering Group of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, as well as the co-founder and past president of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Uh, Dr. Helfand, thanks so much for joining us. Talk about the significance of Putin saying that he's, um, well, they're suspending involvement in START. What does this mean? Uh, good morning, Amy. Well, you know, it is uh, a dialogue between the United States and Russia on the critically important topic of controlling nuclear weapons. And there's no way around that. Uh, having said that, I think there are a couple of things that are important to recognize. One is that the New START Treaty, while somewhat useful, is a very limited uh, document and very inadequate treaty. It still allows the United States and Russia to maintain, and they do, 3,100 strategic nuclear weapons, ranging in size from 100 kilotons to 800 kilotons. That is six to 50 times more powerful than the bombs which destroyed Hiroshima. Now, a study that was published last August showed that if those weapons, still allowed under the New START Treaty, were used in a war, they would cause 150 million tons of soot to be blasted into the upper atmosphere. Well, locking out the sun and dropping temperatures across the planet an average of 18 degrees Fahrenheit. 
In the interior regions of North America and Eurasia, the temperatures would drop 45 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. In the ensuing famine, something like three-quarters of the human race, between five and six billion people would die. Is That's not bad enough. The same study showed that even a very small fraction of those arsenals would cause worldwide catastrophe. Only 250 of the smallest weapons in the strategic arsenal, 100 kilotons, would still generate enough soot to trigger a famine that would kill 2.1 billion people and end civilization as we know it. That means that this treaty allows both the United States and Russia to maintain arsenals which are capable of destroying modern civilization six times over. So it's bad that Russia is suspending its participation, but it is, we need to understand that this treaty itself is deeply flawed and we need to go far beyond it and establish a treaty like the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which actually bans and eliminates these weapons. Well, Dr. Helfen, I wanted to ask you, in terms of uh, where we're heading now, in terms of uh, arms control, given the fact that first the Bush administration withdrew from one treaty, then the Trump administration withdrew from the uh, Intermediate Forces uh, a treaty, and now... Uh, and now um, Putin's suspension of, uh, of Russia's participation in this treaty. What's the, what's the message that these governments are sending to the people of the world? Well, they're sending a message that they're not serious about their obligations to eliminate their nuclear arsenals. They're moving in exactly the wrong direction. And it's important for us to recognize that in response to the Russian decision to suspend participation, there are options open to the U.S. government. And there's one in particular which we should be sure not to take, and that is to respond by withdrawing ourselves, or more importantly, by building more nuclear weapons. Now, the Russians have indicated that they do not intend to exceed the cap that was established. But even if they do, there is no reason for the United States to build more nuclear weapons. As I mentioned, we already have the ability to destroy modern civilization six times over. Adding to that the ability to destroy civilization eight times or 10 times or 12 times over does nothing to enhance our security. We need to establish as U.S. policy that nuclear weapons are the greatest threat to our security. They don't make us safe. And we need to actively pursue an agreement with the other eight nuclear armed countries to eliminate all nuclear weapons, as is called for by the Back from the Brink campaign here in the United States. And Many people, I think, feel that this is a difficult time to be talking about progress towards the elimination of nuclear weapons, given what's going on. And indeed, this is an extraordinarily dangerous moment. But we have to remember that at times in the past, when we have been close to nuclear conflict, as we are now, in the aftermath of those crises, rapid progress was made to improve the situation. You know, in 1983, the United States was threatening to fight and win a nuclear war in Europe. Uh, we placed missiles in West Germany to be able to do that. We almost went to war with the Soviet Union twice in 1983. And yet, less than a year and a half later, Reagan and Gorbachev were able to proclaim that nuclear war must never be fought, it can never be won. And it was a complete reversal of the nuclear policy of both the United States and the Soviet Union. The leaders had emerged from the crisis in 1983, sobered, frightened by what they had almost done and open to a new way of thinking about nuclear weapons. And it is possible, not certain, but possible, that we will see the same kind of reaction to this current extremely dangerous moment. We citizens 
need to push our government to seize the potential opportunity and to move forward. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you in terms of some of the uh, the uh, words of uh, of Putin yesterday. Uh, the Western media doesn't really pay much attention to the actual content of his speech uh, of his speeches. But uh, one part I'd like to quote to you and get your reaction. He said, "Quote: In early February, the North Atlantic Alliance made a statement with actual demand to Russia, as they put it, to return to the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty." including admission of inspections to our nuclear defense facilities. I don't even know what to call this. It is a kind of theater of the absurd, he said. We know the West is directly involved in the Kiev regime's attempt to strike at our strategic aviation bases. The drones used for this purpose were equipped and updated with the assistance of NATO specialists. And now they want to inspect our defense facilities? In the current conditions of confrontation, it simply sounds insane. Uh, that was uh, Putin talking about the, the fact that after these treaties assume a certain level of uh, cooperation between uh, the different countries. And obviously, the war in Ukraine does not make that possible. Well, I think right at the moment, uh, it is very difficult to have that degree of cooperation. But still, there's no reason for uh, Putin to suspend cooperation uh, and the inspections. These inspections are very important in maintaining a level of confidence on both sides, the U.S. and the Russian, that the other side is adhering to this treaty. And anything that undermines this dialogue, which Putin's decision has done, is a step in the wrong direction. Look, uh, there are problems with the position of both countries uh, in many issues. But the need to abolish nuclear weapons transcends all of these problems. If we don't get rid of nuclear weapons, they're going to be used. And if they're used, nothing else that we're doing is going to make any difference. You know, here in the United States... We have the opportunity to affect what our government does, and we need to hold our government accountable for its nuclear policy. We have the ability to change that policy. Uh, Congressman Jim McGovern and Congressman Earl Blumenauer have introduced uh, a resolution in the U.S. House of Representatives, HRES 77, which calls on the United States to embrace the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, to make the elimination of nuclear weapons the centerpiece of our national security policy. And to begin negotiations now with the other eight nuclear armed states for verifiable, enforceable, time-bound agreement to get rid of their nuclear weapons. That's what the U.S. should be doing right now. It has to acknowledge what is happening in Ukraine, the war that President Putin has started there. But that should not derail our efforts to save the planet. We should sit down with all of these countries, including the Russians, if they're willing to do it, and begin these negotiations. But I wanted to ask you about the nuclear power plants in Ukraine. Uh, you know, they've got Zaporizhia, for example, which is the largest nuclear plant uh, in all of Europe and the risks of being in the middle of a war zone with a nuclear catastrophe. No, this is a very dangerous situation, Amy. Nuclear power plants are dangerous inherently in the best of times. They are certainly not designed to be placed in the middle of a war zone. And should there be an accident at Saparija, should the plant come under direct attack again, there is the potential for a catastrophic release of radiation. Much larger inventories of nuclear material are present at Zaporizhia than were present at Chernobyl. And this is an extraordinarily dangerous situation. Uh, in the short term, a demilitarized zone needs to be created around this power plant. Uh, all troops have to be withdrawn. International observers need to be placed there to make sure that the plant is safe. 
In the long term, I think we need to rethink the entire wisdom of having any nuclear power plants, uh, given this, what their, the weaknesses, the vulnerabilities that have been illustrated by this conflict in Ukraine. Dr. Ira Helfenwana, thank you so much for being with us, immediate past president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, which won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, next up, the internal decapitation of Fox News. Documents from Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit against Fox show the network's awareness of the flimsiness of its stolen election narrative. That's right. We're talking Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, what they knew and when they knew it. Stay with us. In the American Dream, featuring Casa Overall by Terry Lynn Carrington and Social Science. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. The foreperson of the special grand jury in Georgia that's investigating attempts by former President Donald Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election confirmed Tuesday that the jury recommended more than a dozen indictments and that the list might include Trump. Core spoke Tuesday with CNN's Kate Baldwin about the evidence that reviewed over the past eight months, including testimony from 75 witnesses. There was just too much for this to just be, oh, okay, we're good. Bye. And if it was just a perjury charge or perjury charges, would that be acceptable to you? That's fine. I will be happy as long as something happens. That was the Georgia grand jury four-person Emily Coors. Among the evidence the grand jury likely reviewed was a recording of Trump in January 2021 threatening Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to overturn Biden's victory in the state. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. All excerpt of the grand jury report made public last week did not make it clear if the indictments include crimes other than perjury. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis will ultimately decide what charges to bring. She has said the decision is imminent. For more, we go to Washington, D.C., to speak with Chris Lehman. He's D.C. Bureau Chief for the Nation. Following this, he wrote a piece, Trump's legal team is in hot water. So talk about the significance of this grand jury for woman speaking out and what that says about the whole grand jury investigation. Well, Amy, it's, you know, um, the the investigation is still very much a work in progress. And it's important to note that the 
this grand jury was a special grand jury convened only to make recommendations to District Attorney um, um, Willis. And so I, there's been a lot of chatter about what it means that this four-person is, is talking so candidly about potential perjury charges. Um, but the um, District Attorney herself is a person who is going to make that call and in that event, she will convene another grand jury um, to formally uh, proffer potential indictments. So uh, it's still very early uh, to be speculating a great deal. And it's also really important to keep in mind the broader background here. You know, Trump has faced um, investigations and potential indictments um, in New York. He's obviously been impeached twice Um the legal system, um, as your viewers well know and listeners well know, um, favors heavily entrenched power. And a former president is about as entrenched as, as power gets, even one that is who is, as the recording you played show, um, overtly engaged in you know, uh, criminal activity. And, and from your coverage of this uh, situation, who are, especially in the Trump orbit or uh, his legal team, would be likely most exposed to potential indictments? Oh, well, you would have to think Mark Meadows, who is very much plugged in. Um, you know, if you read the January 6th report on the insurrection at the Capitol, Meadows is closely conferring uh, with Trump every stage of the way. Um, you know, interestingly, the Justice Department under Trump did um, dissent strongly. Even Bill Barr, who had been a Trump toady throughout most of his tenure, um, you know, understood that this was a bridge too far. Um, so, um, you know, I, I guess um, Trump's personal lawyer could uh, face some exposure. Um, but, you know, they've been very careful in all these proceedings, um, both to protect the president and to um, limit their own exposure to to uh, potential prosecution. Well, Chris. Uh, I, yes, go ahead. Chris Lehman, yeah. and we wanted to move on to your other piece for The Nation that's headlined The Internal Decapitation of right. Fox News. Documents from Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit against Fox show the network's awareness of the flimsiness of its stolen election narrative. That's from your piece. See, Dominion's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit lays out how Fox News hosts and top executives thought former President Trump's 2020 election fraud claims were completely unfounded, yet continued to push his conspiracy theories on air. Included in the documents was a response from Fox News executives when anchor Neil Cavuto cut off then-Trump press secretary Kayleigh McEnany for making unsubstantiated claims. We want an honest, accurate, lawful count. We want maximum sunlight. We want maximum transparency. We want every legal vote to be counted, and we want every illegal vote to whoa, be counted. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I just think we have to be very clear. She's charging. Uh, the other side is welcoming fraud and welcoming illegal voting. Unless she has more details to back that up, I can't in good countenance continue showing you this. So 
after that, Dominion said in its lawsuit that, quote, the brand team led by Raj Shah at Fox Corporation notified senior Fox News and Fox Corporation leadership of the brand threat posed by Cavuto's action. McEnany, by the way, is back hosting now on Fox News. Chris Lehman, can you lay out what the documents reveal and what they say about Fox News and particularly talk about the stars of Fox? Um, what Laura Ingram knew? What Sean Hannity knew? What Tucker Carlson knew? What has been revealed in these emails and what they would say on the air? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the clip you just played is quite revealing because what Neil Cavuto is doing there is what's known as journalism. <laughs> He's uh, reporting on facts as he knows them and calling out a, you know, powerful spokesperson uh, in the act of lying. Um, that is fundamentally what, you know, in a perfect world, all journalists should be doing. What's, you know, so damning in the Dominion um Motion is you see again and again all the top talent and the top corporate executives at Fox in one breath acknowledging that they know that the stolen election narrative is a lie, um, but then tamping down. You know, they cited the Cavuto episode as something they should never do um, going forward. Um, and the reason for this is their viewers, you know, who they've stoked for 25 years on, um, you know, resentment and grievance politics for the right, um, wanted to be spoon-fed some sort of narrative that Donald Trump was denied a second term unjustly. Um, and so when f the news division at Fox and some on-air um, commentators like Cavuto um, provided contradictory information, they started, um, you know, rising up and going over to Newsmax, which is a bottom-feeding right-wing network that gleefully aired any and all claims about stolen elections. So um, Fox was in a meltdown at this moment because they saw they were losing viewership. Um, you know, at one point, uh, Tucker Carlson texted Sean Hannity in a fury saying, you know, our stock price is going down, not a joke. <laughs> and, you know, again, um, it's just not the case that, the you know, in a functioning democracy, the primary purpose of journalism should be to boost um, the stock price of, of your company. It should be to tell the truth and um, let the chips fall where they may. You know, there's, you know, uh, another sort of cliche um, about the conduct of journalism is that it should be done without fear or favor. Uh, in the Dominion documents, you see all kinds of fear and all kinds of favor <laughs> being extended to the Trump administration. So this is, um, you know, a, such a damning moment where you come to the realization that Fox News, despite its corporate name, is not, in fact, a news organization. Uh, what they are doing is promulgating lies um, for um, the sake of maintaining audience share and high profitability. And, uh, it, and we only have about a minute for this segment, but I'm wondering if you could speculate in terms of the potential long-term impact on uh, Fox News uh, as a result of this, uh, of this and the likelihood that uh, Dominion Systems is going to prevail in this lawsuit. Yeah, I, you know, it's very unusual in a defamation case for a motion um, for summary judgment um, to be um, granted, but the evidence is quite overwhelming. Um, so, you know, um, 
It's a $1.4 billion suit. Um, Fox, I think uh, its revenues are north of $14 billion, so it would be a hit. But it's also important to you know, remember that a major corporation like this is going to have libel insurance is, is um, not, you know, what's scary now that we know that the only calculus that matters for Fox News is a, the financial one. Um, you know, they could well regard $1.4 billion as, you know, an acceptable cost of doing business in the pursuit of, of greater profits. So we'll see. I mean, it it's definitely damaging to the reputation of the, the organization and its, you know, lead um, on-air personalities. But, you know, the the sad truth of the matter is, you know, they did rebound from this moment when they thought they were losing an audience share. They are enjoying you know, really robust ratings and healthy profits. So um, in the short term, I fear not a great deal is going to change until and unless we get something like the Fairness Doctrine, which is the whole reason (laughs) that Fox News was allowed to exist in the first place, the suspension of the Fairness Doctrine. um, It's it's going to be a, um, you know, cancer on our democracy. Chris Lehman, I want to thank you for being with us, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Nation. We'll link to your pieces in the nation at democracynow.org. Next up, the family of Malcolm X announces plans to sue the CIA, the FBI, New York police and other government agencies over the 1965 assassination. Back in 30 seconds. Time by Dinah Washington. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. The family of Malcolm X's planned, uh, has announced plans to file a $100 million wrongful death lawsuit against the FBI, the CIA, New York City, and the state, the NYPD, and New York District Attorney's Office for concealing evidence of their involvement in Malcolm X's assassination. The family's announcement came on Tuesday the 58th anniversary of Malcolm's assassination, February 21st, 1965. This all comes just three months after New York City and New York State agreed to pay a total of $36 million to settle lawsuits on behalf of two men who were wrongfully convicted and jailed for decades for assassinating Malcolm X. In 2021, a judge tossed out the convictions against the men, Mohammed Aziz and the late Khalil Islam, after finding serious miscarriages of justice. On Tuesday, Malcolm X's daughter, Dr. Ilyasa Shabazz, and civil rights attorney Ben Crump, standing at the site of the assassination, February 21st, 1965, in the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem, held a news conference. They spoke about Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz at the Memorial and Educational Center in their name. 58 years ago, today, in this very room, one of the greatest thought leaders ever known in the 21st century was assassinated 
And since that time, there has been speculation as to who was involved in the assassination of Malcolm X. We know on November 18th, 2021, it was confirmed and substantiated that the government agencies, the New York Police Department, the FBI, the District Attorney of New York had factual evidence, exculpatory evidence, that they fraudulently concealed from the men who were wrongfully convicted for the assassination of Malcolm X, and they also fraudulently concealed that information, most importantly, from the family of Malcolm X. We know that based on their wrongful conviction that the government settled the matter of Mr. Azir and Mr. Ism, Mr. Aziz, for tens of millions of dollars. This is important for many reasons. One of the most important reasons, it gives Malcolm's daughters an opportunity to seek legal redress, finally, based on the government's admission that they conceal evidence involving the assassination of Malcolm X, the truth of what happened and who was involved has always been critical. So today, at the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Educational Center, we announce and give formal notice to the city of New York, the state of New York, and the federal government and its agencies, the FBI and the CIA, that the family members intend to sue bring a wrongful death lawsuit based on these new revelations that have now finally been substantiated. And the rhetorical question is this. If the government 
compensated the two gentlemen that were wrongfully convicted for the assassination of Malcolm X with tens of millions of dollars, then what is to be the compensation for the daughters who suffered the most from the assassination of Malcolm X. We intend to have vigorous litigation of this matter, to have discovery, to be able to take depositions of the individuals who are still alive 58 years later to make sure that some measure of justice can be given to Malcolm X's daughters who in this very room were present with their mother when he was shot at 21 times 17 bullets hitting him. If anybody deserves justice after these decades, it is these women. So at this time, you will hear from Malcolm's daughter, Iliasa Sebaz. On February 21st, 1965, My mother came here excited to see her husband because a week prior, her home had been firebombed. She walked in here happy and she left out shattered. Today, we will celebrate our father's life and legacy with the community because it is something that my mother did every year that for as long as I can remember, with my sisters and, and, and just the larger community, we will also seek justice for a, a man, a very young man, he was only 39 years old, who gave his life for human rights. For years, our family has fought for the truth to come to light concerning his murder. And we'd like our father to receive the justice that he deserves. The truth about the circumstances leading to the death of our father is important, not only to his family, but to many followers, many admirers, many who look to him for guidance, for love. And it is our hope that litigation of this case will finally provide some unanswered questions we want justice served for our father. Thank you. That was Malcolm X's daughter, Dr. Elyasa Shabazz, speaking Tuesday at the site where Malcolm X was assassinated 58 years ago at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem. Well, during the news conference, I asked the family's attorney, Ben Crump, about the role of the CIA in the murder of Malcolm X. Can you talk about the evidence that the CIA was involved with Malcolm X's assassination? Well— Amy, we, we are 
going to talk to those individuals who were wrongfully convicted, not just of the assassination, but in the days leading up to the assassination, that we believe this was an orchestrated effort. And so what we have to do is connect the dots. And, you know, as people get older, as they get ready to meet their maker, the hope is that they would look at Malcolm X's daughters and say, we wronged them, and we need to make that right before we leave this earth. Family attorney Ben Crump. We end today's show on another subject. The bombshell case here in New York as Senado Garcia Luna, Mexico's former top security official, once charged with leading the fight against narco-trafficking, was convicted Tuesday for accepting millions of dollars in bribes from the Sinaloa cartel under the former leadership of Joaquim El Chapo Guzman, who's serving life sentence in the United States. In exchange, Garcia Luna protected cartel members from arrest, gave them safe passage for cocaine shipments and tip-offs about law enforcement operations. Garcia Luna served under former President Felipe Calderón, who launched Mexico's U.S.-backed so-called war on drugs that's led to the killing and disappearance of tens of thousands of people. Garcia Luna also worked closely with U.S. counter-narcotics and intelligence agencies as part of the crackdown on drug cartels. For more, we're joined here in New York by Penny Leo Ramirez, an investigative journalist who's been covering this closely as the co-host of Futuro Investigates podcast series, USA versus Garcia Luna. And we're joined by the great Mariana Hosa, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, founder of Futuro Media, host of Latino USA. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Penny Leo, your team's been getting up before the sun rises to go to count, to go to the court and be ready if the verdict comes down. And Tuesday, it finally did. Lay out the significance of this verdict and what you investigated and exposed. Well, as you said, uh, yesterday we were there at 3 a.m. Uh, outside of the federal courthouse in Brooklyn, and uh, we were waiting for the verdict. Uh, there were five counts, um, and he was found guilty to all charges, which is a big thing because he is this highest Mexican ever uh, faced and now found guilty in the United States. He was once the person, the architect of this so-called war on drugs. He was the most trusted person of the DEA in Mexico. He, We, we saw in, in the trial, we saw pictures of him with different high-ranking members of the U.S. government, like Hillary Clinton, like Barack Obama. So the U.S. government and the U.S. agencies really trusted this guy for years, while Mexico was becoming the most dangerous place in on earth for journalists. And uh, thousands of people were dying and dying and continue dying in Mexico because of the violence and here in the United States because of the overdoses. So now we know that the so-called war on drugs was false, was um, completely a way to operate to justify and this was part of the closing arguments from the prosecution who said Sarita Comatireri the, the lead of the prosecution uh, uh, prosecution team said that they they created this 
false war on drugs to have a way to justify that they were pursuing the other cartels and favoring the Sinaloa cartel led by El Chapo Guzman. So it's a big thing and it's a trial that involves and we should hold accountable both countries because this person was sort of a triple agent. He was working with the Mexican government. He was working with the DEA and he was working for the Sinaloa cartel. And, and Maria, I, I wanted to ask you, the impact, obviously, in Mexico of this trial is far greater than here in the United States, especially given the fact that under the former president, Felipe Calderón, there was this enormous war on drugs unleashed. Uh, uh, has the trial shown any indication that uh, it went beyond Garcia Luna to other people in the Calderón administration? I mean, there were names thrown out there, but no, really, this was not – I thought actually you were going to ask me whether or not the trial went beyond and that the United States and the prosecutors began to look inwardly and realize that the U.S. government, the DEA, uh, the entire security apparatus uh, failed here. I mean, Juan and, and Amy, we are, we are sold a bill of goods of U.S. intelligence – we are made to believe that the DEA uh, is lawful and knows what it's doing. In fact, there were rumblings about Genaro Garcia Luna over 20 years ago. There were questions about him. So intelligence, uh, what exactly are you talking about? And by the way, you cannot – what we heard in, in the trial, right, is, is the level of the narco state in Mexico. Yes, this is very depressing as a Mexican, of course. But you can't assume that you've got plane loads of cocaine making their way from Mexico City out of the Mexico City airport into New York and that there is no, no corruption on the U U.S. side, no corruption on the New York side. What does that mean? And that's why Penile and I decided to do this podcast that has become this sleeper cult hit, both in English and in Spanish, because it's not about just pointing the finger and saying, oh, corrupt Mexican. That's a very simple narrative. What we're trying to say is that who's really at fault here and what is this war on drugs really about and who's paying the cost, by the way, the thousands of lives of Mexican folks, people murdered in this people dying here in the U.S., but also the number of black and brown people who we all know who are spending time in jail now, that shouldn't be there. And this comes as the Biden administration on Tuesday announced a new border policy to take effect in May that would allow the U.S. to quickly deport asylum seekers who failed to first request asylum uh, on their way to the United States or and to use a mobile app to seek asylum. Uh, Maria, you've covered these immigration issues uh, uh, along the border for so many years. Your reaction to this new uh, decision of the Biden administration? I'm disgusted, Juan. I'm absolutely disgusted. The fact that Joe Biden who you and I know have been around long enough that he knows exactly what's going on. He knows that the people who are coming to seek asylum deserve that opportunity. And he knows what it's like to be in a caravan or in the jungles in Colombia and to attempt to have Internet service to download an app before you leave Haiti to request asylum. It's completely illogical. And that's why I'm glad that you brought it up, because we cannot 
We cannot allow ourselves to be gaslit by this kind of ridiculous policy. By the way, let's remember that this country had the capacity to turn away Jewish refugees at the height of the Nazi era. What we are saying is remain true to who you say you are as a country of immigrants and refugees and, of course, uh, our indebtedness to all of the enslaved people who were brought before. And I want to follow up on that with uh, Penny Ramirez, um, this issue of how immigration, how migration, people coming over the border from Mexico into the United States is directly connected to the U.S. support for people like Garcia Luna, um, as you were just talking about, the close relationship that the Obama administration, Clinton administration, all of them had with this man who ultimately now uh, working uh, with El Chapo um, is convicted on most all counts. Yeah, exactly what you said is is right, because it's all connected. We learned during the trial, for example, that Garcia Luna, we knew it because of my investigative work that the, the same day when he left office in Mexico, he didn't move to other country. He moved to the United States. He moved to Miami to a $3 million house. Then he was living here with his family. He, he got a green card. He got a global entry card. So he was allowed to be here and stay here. And now part of this a guilty verdict that we learned this week was that he was continuously working with the Sinaloa cartel even after he left office. So even after he was living in the United States and they presented the prosecution presenter Ashar when we, we saw that he was going back to Mexico all the time. So he was taking advantages of both countries, living in both countries. And at the same time, the violence in Mexico during those years uh, at it, it came so so big that still it's it's growing and growing. And what happens when you have all this violence in Mexico? Violence also goes to the south, and we have been reporting this. And you have more and more people seeking asylum, trying to come to the United States to be safer, because in their own countries they have no opportunities, they have no econ the economy is not good because you don't have investments, you don't have. People coming in, you don't have entrepreneurs coming in or trying to start a business because the crime, it's so big and it's about everything. Everything, it's, it's corrupted. And something that we we'll learn in this trial is that if you have a person like him who was leading the federal police, he was leading the prison system, so he was leading the whole apparatus and he was helping one cartel and facing the other cartels to have this cartel. So what he was creating was this horrible place to live in so many places in Mexico, and people were forced to leave their towns, leave their cities, seek asylum. So we should analyze also the crisis, the immigration crisis that we have in this uh, country and in Mexico, and all the, the, the people looking for asylum under also under the perspective of this war on drugs, this so-called war on drugs. Now we know this false war on drugs and the responsibilities of people that the U.S. government trusted and created a, a horrible crisis. And that crisis impacted not just in Mexico, but in the region, in Central America, and of course, also here in the United States. 
Well, we want to thank you both for your incredible reporting on this. Uh, Penny Le Ramirez and Maria Nahosa, co-hosts of the podcast USA versus Garcia Luna. Episode 10 is out on Friday. They're laying out the tracks today. That does it for our show. Um, to go to democracynow.org, you can see Democracy Now! in English and also headlines and highlights in Spanish. Special thanks to Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Trina Nadora, Sanji Lopez. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks so much for joining us.